We're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, Galatians chapter 5, and this is one of the most familiar and deeply personal passages that you can find in Paul's writings in the New Testament. This is a very familiar topic in terms of the battle within, what I've entitled the big fight between the flesh and the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And so it should be familiar territory for all of us as we look at these verses, but hopefully as we plumb the depths of what's here, we can find how to apply these verses and how to live in the Spirit, by the Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, living the Christian life. I'm calling it the big fight. It's the internal struggle every follower of Christ is going through. Whether you recognize this fight, Or this battle or not, the ongoing conflict, which is the civil war of the heart. And it's practically something that everybody has to face. Paul is uh, bringing up the flesh again, something he's talked about in verse 13 of chapter 5, where he warns Christians not to give opportunity for the flesh. Don't let the flesh set up a military outpost where you can succumb to your internal temptations. But these temptations are always going to come. We're always needing to recognize that this battle is here and we need to wage war as Christians against it because though Adam's curse has been dethroned in your life as a believer, sin no longer has dominion over you, But nevertheless, the flesh will not be fully eliminated until you see Christ face to face. Until Romans 8.30 says, you will be glorified. And that will happen for all of you. The battle is horrible. It's ongoing. It's something that you dealt with this morning. You're dealing with right now. You'll deal with it tomorrow. But it is not a losing battle. The hope in this text is that you will ultimately be part of the victor's circle as Christ will eliminate the flesh, the fallen humanness that still hangs on to you in this life, both physically and spiritually, the part of you that is yet not fully redeemed. That will be done away with when we see Christ face to face. Well, this is, again, one of, this is familiar territory. It's a very familiar text and it points to how we live into we live in two spheres of existence both the flesh and the spirit listen as i read verses 16 i'm going to read all the way down through verse 23 but i say to you walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So this is Paul's description of what is going on, what is up inside of us. Oh, this is what is really going on. Every Christian has these two spheres. We are united to Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time we are firmly rooted in the world's fallen struggles. We're indwelt with the real presence of the Holy Spirit, and we live assured that we have a sanctifier who is sanctifying us. Seven times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this section. He is the sanctifier. Believe me, if You are conquering sins in your life. It's the Holy Spirit doing it through you and for you. He is for your holiness, and he empowers you to fight against your flesh. God never intended you to rely on your own resources, though many Christians try to do this. We try to fight our flesh with legalism. We try to fight our flesh with ignoring our problems, saying, oh, I'm free from accountability, and so it has nothing to do with me. But we have a sanctifier who sets the bar for your holiness high. We're to be like Jesus Christ. And so we can't fight against our flesh with man's weapons or the devil's weapons. You may think that your life is a failure because of the flesh. You may think that your life should be one triumph after another. I know I fall prey to this where I think, man... I should be marked with victories, not failings and fallings. You ever come home from a spiritual camp or a spiritual retreat or being at Christian college or whatever your variety of that mountaintop experience is only to re-enter into the fray with family or with friends and suddenly all the do-gooding and all the spiritual high in your life goes to do-batting and a spiritual low in your life. And you go, who in the world do I think I really am? Many Christians are suffering from spiritual schizophrenia. They don't recognize themselves because there are two opposing forces inside of every person, two contrary forces that are dragging, one is dragging you downward in the flesh while you're being drawn upward by the Holy Spirit. We might say that we're living free, but we really know better. Martin Luther, he faced the same dilemma. He is known as a spiritual hero of the faith, and yet despite all his attempts to live a godly life, he had to face himself when he was tempted with sin, and he fell to those temptations and committed fleshly sins. They made him worry whether or not he was a Christian at all. You can read that in his biography. Perhaps you have similar doubts because of the enemy that lives within Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, All the fire that the devil can bring from hell could do us little harm if we did not have so much fuel in our nature. We ignite it. It's powder in the magazine of the old man that is our perpetual danger. Still being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it gives you hope 
the Holy Spirit authors all of your desires for holiness. When you are holy, it is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you an empowerment, an enablement, an assurance that you can and you should fight back against your seductive ways of your former self. The Holy Spirit has regenerated you. He empowers you. Though we know that the flesh is strong, it takes a lifelong determination to fight against the flesh and to seek and destroy all of its instincts. We're not fighting a losing battle, but we must kill sin. And these are sins that are evident. I think a lot of people say, you know, I can't get a hold of the battle whatsoever. I don't know what's going on with me whatsoever. I don't know whether I'm in the spirit or in the flesh. But as we're going to be looking later to fill these categories out, if you look down at verse, the verses I read before, 19 through 21, these categories are evident, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. When these patterns are parading themselves in our lives, it's no mystery to us that we are in the flesh if you're honest with yourself in comparison to what Scripture says the flesh looks like. It's not a mystery to us. It's not pie in the sky. And also, likewise, in the Spirit, when we have love and joy and peace and these attributes, we know when the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and we are yielded to Him. Well, here's an encouraging word. If you are willing to fight, you will grow as you battle against your sins. If you want to grow, take up the Lord's weaponry and go to war. Fight by His empowerment. Find the Christian balance of God is working in your life. God will move in your life. The Holy Spirit will work in your life. The Word of God will work in your life. And you are yielding to the Spirit. You are meditating on the Word. And you are trying to put to death or starve the sins in your life by making, as Romans 13 says, no provision for your flesh. You want it to die. You don't want to fight with some fleshly obedience to the law. You don't want to try to fight in the flesh. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, again, he said, if you think you can get help from God by getting angry, you make a great mistake. There are those who, by contrast, just say, I'm going to be passive and let the Holy Spirit do the work. If I try to do the work, then I'll get in the Spirit's way. That's called quietism. That is a a false version of Keswick theology of passive submission where you say, I'm going to let go and let God and let God lead and I'll just, you know, sort of put my hands over my eyes, put my fingers in my ears and go, la, 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 la. Nothing is really going wrong in my life whatsoever. But that's not being a good soldier engaged in active service. That's not being an athlete who runs in such a way that you might win, Second Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 9. So we need to find this Christian Balance. We need to deal with J.B. Phillips, what he called the lower nature. And we need to rely upon our sanctifier and engage the big fight. This is the definition of the normal Christian life. It's to fight the good fight by what? Faith. It's a fight of faith. How do we find this fight of faith to be practical? Well, I want to give you three ways to begin to explore your fight of faith, how to do it. Begin with verse 16. You need to act on the Spirit's promise. Look at verse 16. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, there's a command here with a promise. The language is interesting because there are not two commands here, but one command. Now, we know we are to starve the flesh, we're to kill the flesh, we're to deny ourselves, take up Christ's cross and follow him. So we are supposed to be actively killers of our own sin, but I like the way this command puts the onus on our trust in the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and by doing so, there's a promise. You'll not be gratifying the flesh. There could not be more negative Greek negative language than Paul gives here in verse 16. It's ume. You will in no way gratify the flesh if you are walking by the Spirit. It will not be happening in your life. If you would just walk by the Holy Spirit, then you will find that the flesh is decreasing in your life. Easier said than done though, right? But that is the simple promise that is here for you. Find out what it means to walk by the Spirit, and you will find decreasing sin in your life. That's the promise. The besetting sins, the things that plague you, the patterns in your life, the natural sinful proclivities that keep climbing out, and you say, how do I get rid of that? Well, walk by the Spirit of God. That's what we're going to talk about doing. In doing so, when you're walking by the Spirit, you are actually not gratifying the desires of the flesh because you cannot do both. It was like the football announcer said of the hurt football player that kept crashing into the line one after the other. And I think he had a hurt shoulder, a hurt back, a hurt ankle. And his encouragement was, this was uh, uh, John Madden said, you know, as some way of encouragement, because this guy was a broken athlete. He said, well, I've always heard that you can only focus on one point of pain in your body at a time. So at least he's only hurting in one area of his body at once. Well, the point is, if you are following after the Holy Spirit and your focus is there, it is the Holy Spirit then is working in your life to destroy all the pain points of sin that otherwise are plaguing you. Verse 16 is positioned right at a pivot point um, next to verse 15. Remember the warning, don't bite and if you bite and devour one another, You'll consume one another, verse 15. Remember that? That parallels verse 16. There's an if-then. If you are biting and devouring people, gossiping against people, hurting people with your words, then there's consumption. How do you deal with that sin? Well, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So stop biting and devouring how? Stop gratifying the flesh with gossip how? Walk in the Holy Spirit. The word walk here is peripateo. It's one of my favorite Greek words just to say, peripateo. Say it again, peripateo. It's kind of fun. What it means is to walk around. And it's the idea of your Christian life or your life in general is a walk. It's a journey. It's something that you are experiencing in live action with people and circumstances and things to do and things that you are a part of. It's your normal lifestyle. Well, within that normal lifestyle, that normal walk, it is supposed to be with a spirit consciousness or walking through your Christian life 
in day-to-day operations with day-to-day work duties and things that you have to do, recognizing that you are in the presence of God because the Holy Spirit is in your life. And you're recognizing that always. It's the idea of praying without ceasing. You know that the Holy Spirit is there with you. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. He's personal. He, the Holy Spirit. I think in my notes, I capitalized he every time I was referencing the Holy Spirit, just to remind me of his personhood. The person of the Father might seem more personal to you, or the Son, the Lord Jesus, as we read of him and his life in the Gospels. But the Holy Spirit is he, the Holy Spirit, who is personally a member of the Trinity, the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is as much God and is as authoritatively God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I do believe in the subordination of the Trinity, but they are equal in essence and power. And so you have God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives, and we are commanded to acknowledge him, to walk with an acknowledgement of him. This is a present tense imperative. It's a non-negotiable lifestyle of the believer. It's by the Lord's design that we know him in this way. We are making step-by-step decisions. We're progressing in life, going somewhere And the Spirit of God is showing you where you aren't yet and where you ought to be. It's a willingness to be yielded to the Holy Spirit's convicting work in your life. God, show me my sin. God, show me where I am falling down. Reveal to me where I need to be more and more like Christ. Christians often ask, especially in college settings, hey, how's your walk, right? That's actually a good way to ask someone how they're doing spiritually. How's your walk? The Apostle Paul may have used language like this. How is your walk spiritually? He uses this idea over and over again. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. All are places, are books of the Bible where Paul uses the word walk. Walk in wisdom, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, walk in terms of the gospel, walk in newness of life, walk in love, walk in faith, walk not as the Gentiles, walk carefully, walk as children of light. These are all phrases that Paul uses with walk, and they all really come under the banner of walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. You're able to do that. This is a New Testament, New Covenant promise. This is something that we have that an Old Testament Christian was not clear on. Ezekiel 36, 26 is the prophetic word for what we have in the New Testament. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is, by the way, the answer to legalism. Legalism is where you are trying to rely on your own strength and your own resources to reform your life. What can I do to change myself? In salvation, we had to rely completely on God's resources to be saved. In sanctification, in the same way, we have to completely rely upon God's resources to grow in our personal holiness. 
Yes, we do things. We're commanded to pray. We're commanded to read our Bibles. We're commanded to fellowship with each other. We're commanded to be part of church. We're commanded to be part of each other's lives. We're commanded to give. We're commanded to do. We're commanded to serve. We are commanded all over the place in Scripture. But we are never supposed to do those things by our own resources, within our own resources to help change us or reform us. That's just not what God's design is for spiritual life. I think it's also important to understand that if you're not a Christian, you really don't know anything at all about this warfare. If you are a Christian, your ears are probably perked up and you're going, yeah, I, I do know something about this warfare. And it might even be a relief to you to say, okay, I admit it, I am a sinner and I'm a whole lot worse than you know I am on the inside than I appear to be on the outside. The war is real. The war is severe. The war is raging and going on. A non-Christian doesn't really understand that kind of dynamic or even that kind of admission or even that kind of confession. If you try to connect with an unbeliever regarding your own internal warfare, they'll just give you a dial tone. I mean, you just won't know what's going on. Um, For you millennials, that's when there were phones that were connected to the wall and you'd pick it up and hear something. Dial tone, empty, blank. They don't understand. They might feel badly about sins that they've committed, about the consequences of what they're going through, the guilt of their sin. They're made in the image of God. But at the same time, they don't have the understanding of this fight within that we do. Paul here is answering how to resolve the fight within you. Now, it's not making it go away, but it's how do you fight with a single command? You, you do so by walking, by walking, walking by a spirit, the spirit of God who will never lead you to indulge in your flesh. Paul teaches that the threat of the flesh is constant and that we need to recognize that the flesh is real. Again, look at this sin list that's attacking you from the inside. Spurgeon called this the blacklist, the black catalog of sins. It's four classes that are mentioned here in verses 19 through 21. There's lust. We're going to talk about these next week. There's idolatry. There's witchcraft, which is pharmakeia, which is probably related to people getting doped up on, um, on drugs. Sins of temper, sins of appetite. We'll explain these later, but these categories are real. They're pervasive. James 1 talks about sin being born from the inside of us. It's still there. When you're participating in these things, you are living in the extreme opposite realm of the freedom and joy that we are supposed to enjoy. But these categories nevertheless show you how deep and how bad it can be on the inside of your own heart. This is why when I counsel someone or talk to someone and they begin to talk about their sins, I don't just let them off the hook at a superficial level. You shouldn't let anybody off the hook at a superficial level when you ask someone about their sin. What is really going on in your heart? Because we don't want to underestimate the power of the flesh. To ask someone if they're really struggling on a deep level like this is not to necessarily doubt a person's salvation. 
Instead, you're just trying to probe and to pull somebody out of the quagmire of the flesh that they have given themselves over to. They've made an opportunity for the flesh, verse 13, and they're spiraling down within it. Lust, idolatry, witchcraft, sins of temper, sins of appetite. They're all listed as sins of the flesh, contrary to walking in the spirit. Okay, what does it mean to walk in the spirit? I've talked a little bit about that, but I just wanted to tease out the concept of walking for a second. Walking is something that most of us do daily. And walking is something that you are participating in. You're doing it. You're choosing to walk somewhere. You're sitting down, you go, you know what? In a few minutes, I'm going to walk over there to that person, or I'm going to walk to the bathroom. I'm going to walk out of the building. I'm going to walk to my car. You're making a conscious decision to do that, and I think Paul is picking up on that. But at the same time, there's an involuntary nature to walking, unless you're walking out in the wilderness like me where I stick my foot into a big mud hole like I did recently, hiking with Pete Johnson. I had to put that in there, Pete, because you would ask me about it. He said, hey, watch where you're walking, kids. He had my three little boys with him. Don't step in the mud hole, and I'm watching them, and there then goes my foot. You're right into the, the mud. I mean, for a sloshy west, rest of the way home. But typically, when you're walking, you're not in a place where you aren't sure-footed. You're just walking. And you're walking in a way that's involuntary. You're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just walking. You're thinking about someone else. You're thinking about other people. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your circumstances. You're thinking about something that you want to do or need to do, or you're responding to someone as you're walking. And I think that's, a, that's what makes it a perfect picture of walking by the Spirit. In one sense, we are choosing to yield to the Holy Spirit's power, having a God consciousness, saying, God, I love you. I'm acknowledging that you are real in my life. I could think about the flesh, but instead I'm going to think about the Lord Jesus, or I'm going to think about truth or a promise in Scripture instead. I'm going to delight myself in the Lord right now. I'm going to give my heart to you. And at the same time as we do that, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's making us perfect or complete in Christ. He's finishing this work that he's started in us. So as we walk, he's working. There's a sense in which we choose to put ourselves in yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense in which, just like we go on autopilot when we walk, we know that the Lord is working in our lives. He's changing us. So we find encouragement in that. We find a heart of rest in that instead of trying to attain some kind of holiness through our own resolve, through our own redoubled efforts, or through trying to attain spirituality through human potentiality. And it cannot and it will not be done. That will drain you spiritually. And you know that. I'm not going to make a showing of hands, but for many of you who've tried to reform yourself, you found yourself to be completely exhausted. And you don't even know why. What's going wrong? Why do I have no energy? Why am I dry spiritually? Well, perhaps you haven't applied this verse, which is walking by the Spirit, acting on the fact that if I will just look upward and trust God for help, relying on Him, then He will be working in the desires of my flesh 
He will be reforming me, walking by the Spirit. If you do this, the strongest negative is used. You will certainly not fulfill the flesh. As one person put it, if you walk in the Spirit, there is not even a chance you will fulfill the flesh. The Holy Spirit will thwart and conquer weaknesses of the human nature. Okay, point two. So you act on the promise, and then secondly, you engage the battle raging inside. Now this is a verse that ties back with verse 16. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The idea is that verse 17 is just saying it's on. It's happening. This is something that we all are tempted to ignore that instead we should acknowledge. We need to understand that there's a great battle being waged in our hearts. This is why we have to walk in the Spirit, because it is this bad inside. Yes, Ephesians 5 talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, and there's demons out there, and there are demonic ideologies out there. There are false religions out there. There are false teachers out there. There is false teaching out there. There are discouragements that are out there. There are people who are bad influences out there. But there is also an enemy in there that wants to take you down. And it is the enemy within, which is our flesh. Verse 17 is a leveling verse. It levels the playing field. There is no one who has reached to some spirituality where they are the paragon of all spiritual virtue who is not dealing with the flesh. It's a leveler. For some people, they say, man, this is encouraging because now I know God is no respecter of Christians. We're all struggling in this way. The Holy Spirit is working and convicting us of our sin, but he's also exposing, as verse 17 puts it, the enemy, the war that's going on inside. Martin Luther said this, and he was encouraged by verse 17. Verse 17 was encouraging to him. He would preach to himself, Martin, you will never be completely without sin because you still have the flesh. Therefore, you will always be aware of its conflict according to the statement of Paul, the desire of the flesh, our desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Do not despair, therefore, but fight back and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, if you look more closely in the original language, it doesn't say the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. It's just the flesh is against the spirit. And we know that the flesh is not as strong as the Holy Spirit, but the warfare in terms of the language is putting both categories on an equal par, like you have one person in this corner and one person in this corner in your life. You have two competing natures that are going on. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, he compared the two natures as two different kinds of animals. You have unclean animals and clean animals, and he was talking about unclean animals like pigs that are compared to clean animals like lambs or unclean animals like ravens. We know about ravens, especially on Wednesday, at least in our neck of the woods, trash day, and doves. And you have certain animals that are the garbage collectors. They're the catfish animals that go and eat all the junk on the ground, right? And they are drawn towards garbage. They're designed to, to be the garbage cleaners of our whatever ecosystem. But Then you have other animals that seem to keep themselves cleaner and they're distanced from the garbage. 
Well, we have both kinds of animals going on inside of us all the time. It's the big contrast. And they're in an irreconcilable conflict. There's no stalemate going on. This is not something that we should take lightly. If you want to be strong, if you want to be a witness, if you want to be heartened, if you want to be someone who your wife says, oh, you're a Christian, are you? You really are a Christian. I can see that. Or you want your kids to look up to you and say, yes, my dad is a believer or my mom is a believer. Or you want your brothers or your sisters to understand and see something noble in your life. It's not that you go into another state of spirituality, into sinless perfection, or you reach some new height and new level in their eyes. It's just that you're willing to fight against your flesh. Verse 17 is calling for you to have integrity, to take up a weapon and fight. Don't just let bullets fly by or spears fly by or arrows fly by. You actually engage the battle. You get involved with the enemy within. The desire of the flesh, epithumia, could be translated as over-desire. One person put it this way, it's an inordinate desire where good things that are meant for good in our lives can turn evil and be turned into idols. Um, The purity of the home and the marriage bed can be turned into sexual immorality, idolatry, sin. It's where something goes up on a pedestal that shouldn't be there that we worship and want so desperately. Money in and of itself is not sinful, but the love of money is sinful. All kinds of evil come out of it. Covetousness, wanting what we should not have. Having things is not wrong. It's just wanting things to the point where you aren't walking in the spirit. That's where it's wrong. That's where your flesh has taken hold of it. Ephesians 5.5, you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You can be someone who's unsaved, found bound up in idolatry. Colossians 3.5, it's the same thing. Putting to death immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. David Pallison put it this way. He said the perfection, well, he said idolatry is a, a characteristic summary of the Old Testament. And Israel, when it would follow idols, it would go adrift. And in the same way, in the New Testament, desires or epithumia, this is the New Testament idolatry where we are also put adrift. This is where we're leaving our Christian community and making a choice to entangle ourselves with Gentile regents with false worship, with false idolatry. It's when you flip on the TV or you turn to the media and you say, I want the world instead of Jesus Christ. I want to feed there and find out who I am in terms of the world instead of in terms of Christ. It's the perversion of the perfection of paradise when sin was injected originally in the heart what Luther called being partly righteous and partly sinner. It's Latin, simul justus et peccator. It's, it's you're, just, you're just split in half. And the flesh is personified. And I'll read the very familiar text from Paul in Romans 7. Romans 7, 14 to 26. Listen to this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am in the flesh of the flesh, sold under sin, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing 
that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see how that's personified there? I mean, who's responsible for doing what we don't want to do? We are. But it is the sin, it is our flesh that is within us that is waging war against the Holy Spirit's enablement in our lives. We do not have to sin as believers. We will sin, but we're always making a choice when we choose to not be yielded to the Holy Spirit. It's our old motivational system, our old goals, our old needs, our old drives, this motivational system that is still well intact. It's the, tact, it's the weakness and helplessness that still clings to our redeemed souls. It's we're reborn, but we're still falling into sin. But it's not hopeless. When we fall into sin, we should say, that's not the real me. And I've done this in my Christian life. When tempted, you say, that's not who I am am. It's not what I want to do. It's not your will, O oh God. This irreconcilable antagonism is going to go on, but I'm a son of the master. I'm a son of the king. This is fighting your flesh, acknowledging who you are in Christ in the moment. Recently, we've been trained here on the campus to be ready for intruders, to be ready for things that could go wrong. And all of that decision-making has to happen before the incident happens for you to be successful in the fight. You have to be ready for the fight. And that's the spiritual battle that goes on in our lives. You have to be prepared. Otherwise, when temptation comes, you will be numb because your flesh will take over instead of being yielded to the Holy Spirit. Well, lastly, yield to the Holy Spirit's leadership. You have to act on the Spirit's promise, engage the spiritual battle raging inside, and then yield to the Spirit's leadership. Verse 18, this seems like a repetition, but it does give a a different angle to what he's already said. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Led by the Spirit. So far, we've been talking about The Holy Spirit, verse 16, walking by the Spirit here, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25 later, it talks about lining up by the Spirit of God, keeping in step with the Spirit as if in a military parade march. This is not passive resignation. This is not some sort of sad truce where you say, I'm going to throw my hands up and just say, I can't win, so I'm not going to try. This, at the same time, does not dismiss biblical morality. We are to engage the biblical norms of Scripture. But at the same time, we're not putting ourselves, as verse 18 says, back under the law. We're instead saying, Holy Spirit, I need your leadership. Lead me and guide me in the truth. Take Scripture and bring it to bear on my heart. Make me like David who says, I delight to do the law. I delight to do your will. I want the truth to set me free. 
To be guided by the Spirit, Romans 8, 14, is Christianity. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. This is the leadership of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people will say, I need to pray this prayer. Lord, lead me and guide me. Well, guess what? God is leading you and guiding you. It's just you need to pray not that he'll do that, but that you'll yield to what he's doing in your life. He is already doing it. We need to be obedient and surrender to the Holy Spirit, to the law that's written on our hearts so we can say, I delight to do your will. Verses 16 and 17, they're really answering verse 13 about not making an opportunity for the flesh. And then verse 18 now is tying back together with verse 14 about doing the law. What does it look like to obey the law of God? We obey the law of God by being led by the Holy Spirit. This is where we are in salvation history. We're not old covenant believers. We're not under the tutor, tutelage or the mastery of the law anymore. The law shows us our sin. The law exposes us for who we really are. The law exacerbates our sins. It makes the battle for holiness unwinnable in our eyes. The law is lovely to us because it also reveals who God is. But the law's loveliness only is obeyed through the leadership of of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So in other words, if you're trying to obey the law as if you are an Old Covenant, Old Testament person, then you're not yet under grace. Romans 6, 14 says, the testimony of the Christian is that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Pilgrim's Progress, John, John Bunyan wrote this, and he wrote about being on a journey, a walk. He was trying to go to heaven or the celestial city, and he came to a place called the Interpreter's House. It was a parlor of the house that was completely covered in dust, very much like the Kratzholm. And when a man took, we have a lot of people in there and dogs, and when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the other he and the other in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. The more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. The interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water with which the dust was quickly washed away. Interpreter explained to Pilgrim, that's Christian who's on the journey, that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man, that the dust was the original sin, and man with the broom was the law, and the man with the water was the gospel. His point was that all the law can do with sin is stir it up. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wash it away. Paul is saying that you're not under the law. What he means here is using shorthand. He's saying you're not under the curse of the law. You're not under the law's cursed. Your fleshly heart needs to be dealt with by the Holy Spirit not under the condemnation of legalism. You have to learn not to fall prey to self-salvation where you're trying to save yourself. That can have detrimental consequences. So what happens when I fail to win the struggle against the flesh? Does this mean that you're under condemnation? Well, Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation. No, you are justified by grace alone, by the gospel. You're saved by grace. And the Holy Spirit has come to live in your life so that you can fight against sin. Use the Holy Spirit. Rely on him, personally, him in your life to fight against your flesh. One person 
compared the Holy Spirit's leadership to a locomotive. And there are hundreds of cars behind this locomotive, and it's going on, powerfully steaming along down the track, and you are represented by one of those cars following the lead of the Holy Spirit that is bringing you down the track. The Spirit's power is passed along while you struggle and while you grow. And I'm hoping that this reassures you as a believer that your fight is not hopeless. There's motivation because the Holy Spirit reigns. 